Cryptocurrency, secret money. An untraceable source of wealth where regulation doesn't exist and investors flounder around like the 49ers panning for gold in a river. That 1949 gold rush was truly a new frontier in its time, a lawless land of opportunity. You may have thought that couldn't happen again. You may have thought you've seen it all from the internet. Can the digital age actually go further? You bet. Hi, I'm Joe Lareso, and this is a quick dive into the elusive, complex, and incredibly strange world of cryptocurrency. Sit tight, because there's a lot of info. But I promise, if you keep up, I bet you'll know a lot more about cryptocurrency and have an edge in this new topic. The birth of cryptocurrency began with the creation of a domain name in August of 2008, bitcoin.org. This was right before the financial crisis of 2008, where several large banks were on the verge of failure and required a federal government bailout. The idea of cryptocurrency itself was not created because of the financial crisis. But it seems that the creator of Bitcoin had a bone to pick with the traditional banks, and his timing for this new concept seemed perfect. It's very likely that the 2008 financial collapse was the last straw for the cryptocurrency creator Satoshi Nakamoto. In October of 2008, one month after the Lehman Brothers Global Bank failed, Nakamoto published his blueprint for the future of currency. His white paper is called Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Even in the first line of the abstract of this paper, Nakamoto takes a shot at banks by saying, a purely peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. Now, he believed there was a need for a new and more revolutionary way for people to exchange money. Whether he was really a bank hater or not, you can't argue that moving money has changed much since the Web 2.0 era. Connectivity has drastically changed so many parts of our lives, and it was about time that our currency exchange system caught up to speed. So, the first mention of cryptocurrency began with Bitcoin.org in 2008. The first description came in the Bitcoin white paper, but what exactly is cryptocurrency? It's a tough question, and it may not surprise you that many people aren't too sure. Could you tell me anything that you know about cryptocurrency? I literally have no idea what that is. It's okay. Um, what if I told you Bitcoin? What, what do you know about Bitcoin? I know that like 10 years ago, maybe, people started investing in it because it was... Um, I don't know, but now they're making like tons of money from it, but I don't really understand yeah. the concept too much. I don't, honestly, I don't know enough about it to have an opinion. You're asking me the definition of what it is. Think it is. I have no idea what it is. Although the whole concept behind cryptocurrency is complex, it's basically a digital system where two individuals can exchange money. It's all done electronically. It's directly from one person's electronic wallet to another. It's all private and it's not regulated by outside entities. No governments, banks, or watchdogs of any type. Now, Bitcoin became the first recorded cryptocurrency used for digital transactions on a peer-to-peer -peer network. And Bitcoin is not the only cryptocurrency, but it is the most recognizable, and it was the first system of cryptocurrency that was up and running. Satoshi Nakamoto explains in the Bitcoin white paper, one of the biggest obstacles in the past that has kept tech innovators and banks out of the completely digitized cash game is that it's really difficult to prevent double spending. Think about it this way. The photos that you have on your phone or computer, you can send a picture to your friend or your mom, you can post it to Facebook, 
And you don't mind sending it to other people. After all, you still have the photo on your hard drive at the end of the day. So no matter who has the photo, you're still set. That's the core essence of the double spending problem. If you send someone a digital dollar, how do you keep track of who is receiving the money and who is giving the money and then make sure that every transaction around the world is not letting anyone pass around multiple copies of their digital money like it's a selfie at Disney World? There's another part of cryptocurrency that is essential to preventing the double spending problem, and that is the invention of the blockchain. The history and inner workings of a blockchain are another topic that I can't get into in one podcast, but it's impossible to talk about cryptocurrency without blockchain technology. Now, I thought of a way that I could demonstrate and exemplify this system through a sort of experiment. Although I regret I couldn't invite you myself, imagine we're playing a game of blackjack with some All friends. All right, so thank you guys for coming. Um, so what I wanted to do, like I said, we're just going to play a quick game of blackjack for about 20 minutes. Um, or poker, just or maybe Scrabble, if you're experience. really not into playing cards. Uh, I promise it all relates, and I'll share it with you guys afterwards if you want. What we're going to do, I know you usually play with chips. I don't have chips, so we're just going to use this notebook here, and we're going to record everyone's scores in here in columns. Also, because it's hard to really bet like that, we're going to just do like a plus one or minus one if you win or lose that round. So no actual gambling per se. And then, you know, we will have a winner at the end. But we will record by plus one, minus one every time. I set up this game of blackjack with several classmates, but I didn't tell them I don't have any chips until they arrived. See, cryptocurrency is something that you can't really touch. And you don't get to see how much someone else is sending or receiving unless you're the person handling the transaction. And even then, there's no incentive for the person processing the transaction to try to and cheat. And we will rotate the dealer every round to keep it fair, just to make sure that everyone's having a chance to get the highest score possible. Does that sound good to you guys? Yeah. yeah. Sounds, sounds fine to me. All right, guys, let's deal them up. Um, actually, do any of you know how to do like the bridge shuffle? I'm really bad at that. No. 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 Uh, okay. no. All right, oh, thanks, okay. man. Do so you guys ever uh, play blackjack before? Yeah. A few Thank you. Thank you. In this demonstration, the cryptocurrency wallet is the recorded score total for yeah, each person. We recorded the results of each round with a notepad and a pen, which is a great simplified example of a blockchain. A blockchain is a string or chain of transactions recorded on a single ledger, and that ledger is shared with all computers on the blockchain network. It's like having a single college-ruled notebook, but every note on the network, or computer that handles the transactions, has simultaneous access to this notebook. The transaction processing nodes complete a proof-of-work algorithm to show that they handled a transaction between two people. Think of the proof-of-work like, writing down in the notebook, Joe gave two bitcoins to Brian at noon today, on a single line in pen. Since it took work from the processing node, Joe and Brian's transaction is recorded in an indisputable manner. There's no double spending, there is proof of transaction, and people can exchange freely. Additionally, the network users who process transactions receive bitcoin whenever they take the energy to crack the algorithm and metaphorically write the transaction down. Unfortunately, I couldn't afford to pay the dealer every round for being a good sport, but hey, nothing's perfect. That's a quick overview of how Bitcoin transactions occur on the blockchain. However, 
things aren't always smooth and easy in life. Maybe you had a question like, how do I know the transactions are secure and recorded correctly? To take you back to our blackjack game, there's multiple nodes or computers processing these transactions, just like everyone in the game had to rotate into the dealer role at several points. Any participant can record the transactions every round, and everyone has access to the same notebook. If something seemed off, we can all review the string of work or the chain of transactions and determine where a mistake was made. Now, with transacting Bitcoin on a blockchain, there's an additional incentive to make sure there are no mistakes, because the energy required for the proof of work greatly exceeds what it would take for one person to write on a line of a notebook. Mistakes are not awarded any Bitcoin for trying to crack the proof of work algorithm, which is a huge waste of time and electricity for that person. In the same way, blockchain technology with cryptocurrency does not need to be regulated by an outside force. If you're thinking, why not? Or what does regulation and financial systems do? Or maybe you're just thinking, why should I care? Then sit tight and pay attention, because this part is exactly why we still rely on banks to send money for us, and why there's often a fee when you want to send someone else money. See, banks hold your money for you and have a lot of helpful services, but one of their most important tasks is making sure that you don't have fraudulent activity on your account. If you notice a transaction that you didn't make, you can easily call or visit your bank and they will make sure any stolen money is returned to you. If someone halfway across the world tries to order, say, $10,000 in iTunes gift cards with your credit or debit card, your card company can freeze or reverse that transaction so you're not liable. But preventing fraud is a time-consuming task. When I worked for a bank in my previous role, I spent about 10 to 20% of my work day reviewing transactions with customers, filing fraud claims, or communicating with our fraud department to see when a customer's issue would be resolved. It's a painful process for consumers. If someone has your debit card or account information, you might not be able to pay your bills or buy the everyday items you need. Banks are the top target for hacking and fraud because the money is held in one central location. So what if there was a system you couldn't hack so transactions could be trusted between people? Individuals who hold cryptocurrency like Bitcoin have a public address that they use to send and receive money, but each transaction also has a private address that serves as a digital signature. The code is complex and incredibly long, like trying to guess the codes on the back of a gift card. The private code is added to the sending transaction as well as the receiving transaction, so the owner knows exactly where the money is going. I read a great example of this by Business Insider author Simon Black. In his article about protecting your Bitcoin, Simon explains that your public address is like your home address and your private code is your house key. You wouldn't mind giving your home address to people so they can send you mail, but you would never make copies of your house key and distribute them. The private code can be stored safely in numerous ways to ensure your wallet will not be hacked, so any cautious crypto enthusiast should have no difficulty keeping their money safe. Now, that's all well and good, but there's another target for hackers. The network nodes that process transactions, or the computers that are involved in everything. Couldn't someone just hack into an individual computer and just reroute the transactions to a different account? The answer, yes, but also not even a chance. You could hack into someone's computer, sure. You could take control of a processing node through that computer, sure. But the decentralized network is what separates cryptocurrency security from bank security. 
one node controls the proof of work it produces, but must share it with the entire network. Going back to the blackjack example. All right, deal, Jeff. Your turn. All right, awesome. I know it's not ideal to like record it all this way and you know, on the notebook and everything, but it works, right? I mean, hey, yeah. whatever, whatever system works for you. Hey, uh, do you mind if I just check my score real yeah, quick? Yeah, yeah, do it. You're the, you're the dealer. All right. Let's see. That's a two. That's a... Huh. Hey, uh, uh, Joe, I think you recorded my score wrong. What? Uh, yeah, I'm, I think I'm supposed to have seven wins. You only put me down for four. What are you... You sure? What if someone tried to cheat and bump someone's score down? I had to add this part into the game. Sorry, Jeff. But I tried to steal your metaphorical bitcoins. Yeah. Well, maybe we should take a look at the notebook. Uh, okay, we'll just... We'll, let's go through them real quick. It's, you know, it's not that difficult. But it was to prove a point. We can just look at the shared ledger or notebook and see what seems off. Huh. Uh, well, it looks like you dropped by about 10 there, so there's definitely a mistake going on. Okay, that's, that's fine. We can just, you know, so, so we'll just right cross that out, and we can just redo these. That was two rounds ago. It only goes up by one. Okay. Uh, you won last round? Yeah, yeah. And you lost the one before that? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we're going to go back to this score right here, and I mean, this looks better, right? Yeah. So this method actually didn't work too bad either. Yeah. If a group consensus says that the information is wrong, someone else will process the transaction and they will receive the proof of work credit and the bitcoins that go with it. If I want to steal Jeff's bitcoin and get away with it, I'd have to have a majority of the other players in on the scheme. Approve the fake transactions every round and have it going long enough that he couldn't tell when something started to get wrong. That's exactly what a hacker would have to do to actually steal through the network. So it's incredibly complex. Step one, hijack more than half the network. Step two, approve a long string of fake transactions. Step three, have a blockchain represent a longer string of fake transactions than real transactions, so the chain accepts the information. If it wasn't enough work to take over a majority of the network, you would still have to have a longer set of transactions approved than the real ones. Because each transaction in the blockchain builds off of the last one and contains a piece of the transaction before and after, and that's how it's added to the chain, which is why it's called a chain in the first place. If the network processed one notebook page worth of real transactions, you would have to produce at least that much in fake transactions. It would be like trying to build a fake pyramid of Giza. It's probably not worth the hard labor when you don't even know if you'll get close enough to be passable. Now. Here's the part where I promise that this whole process should matter to you. When centralized systems monitor financial transactions, they have to prevent fraud and be able to reverse transactions if something were to go wrong on your account. I mentioned earlier that banks spend a considerable amount of time sorting out fraud, and we've all heard that time is money. When researching this topic, I found several articles from the past few years that stated an increased amount of bank spending and resources are going towards fraudulent activity and preventing that activity. With more time and money spent, banks will have to rebalance their checkbooks by cutting interest rates paid out to customers, increasing interest rates on their lending products, increasing fees for accounts or services, maybe adding a new type of fee on you, or imposing more strict regulations on employee salary or benefits, or maybe just cutting the dividends to shareholders. And any of these are bad news if you're a customer of a bank that does this. Every part of the food chain is connected. But wait, there's good news too. Since cryptocurrency is decentralized and requires a significant amount of energy to process transactions, 
they make the transactions permanent and non-reversible. But that's a good thing. See, if you send a transaction and you can't take it back, both parties can trust that the funds are good and available. There doesn't need to be a middleman that double checks. So transactions are processed faster. Everyone knows the money's where it should be. Lower work and eliminating backtracking saves time and will save you transaction fees. And even if you don't use Bitcoin, this system is being adapted to a lot of different companies and platforms. So odds are you may see a variation of it sooner than you think. So we've gone over how Bitcoin works and hopefully this world is coming together a little bit better now. But I need to warn you, we have to take a quick step back. The bigger question I posed at the top of this section was what is cryptocurrency? If you remember the interviews from the top of this section, you've probably got an idea what what next biggest concern is for the emerging technology. A lot of people believe that Bitcoin is cryptocurrency. Now it is the highest priced cryptocurrency and definitely the most famous today, but there are so many different cryptocurrencies out there and they're coming out all the time. They're not all the same price either. Some are worth $100, some cost just fractions of a penny. So maybe it makes you wonder, what is the value of cryptocurrency at all? Now, let me share with you one of the funniest stories I heard about cryptocurrency. On May 22nd, 2010, web developer and Bitcoin enthusiast Laszlo Hanyes was feeling a little hungry. He posted on the Bitcoin Talk forum, I'll pay 10,000 Bitcoins for a couple of pizzas. Like, maybe two large ones so I have some left over for the next day. Now, that probably seems insane to us today, but in 2010, Bitcoin was still so new that 10,000 Bitcoins would have cost about 40 bucks. A British forum user gladly accepted the deal because, at the time, she's still making out pretty well. He brought Laszlo two Papa John's large pizzas valued in 2010 around you know, 25 bucks, and earned a solid $15 for himself. Today, that 10000 in Bitcoin is worth over $110 million. This was the first recorded peer-to-peer Bitcoin transaction. <laughs> now, naturally, it became famous in the cryptocurrency community, and May 22nd is now known as Bitcoin Pizza Day. Although Laszlo is definitely kicking himself for giving up a fortune now, he wasn't stupid. And you might be able to say that it wasn't even a mistake. No one, then, could have known that the price would jump so much. I mean, even the mega-millionaire who delivered the pizzas for one day in his life expected that he might earn a little bit of money, and he had to use his own money to buy those pizzas. You could not give Papa John's Bitcoin, and you can't use Bitcoin in a great majority of stores today either. One of the top marketplaces where you can use Bitcoin is the Silk Road, which is basically an online drug dealer with discreet shipping and a customer service department. So, if you can't use it most places, why is it so valuable? Beanie Babies were supposed to be universally rare and valuable, remember those? The Beanie Baby community still thinks they're, but the rest of the world has definitely moved on. To things like Bitcoin. But is Bitcoin just another rarity fad? Satoshi Nakamoto's cryptocurrency and algorithmic system will produce a total of 21 million Bitcoins over the next 20 years. So they will eventually run out of Bitcoins. Is that why it went from 7 cents in 2010 to over $11,000 now? Well, maybe. It's a hard maybe. Some people see it as a rare commodity. In fact, the U.S. Commodity Futures and Trading Commission 
officially declared Bitcoin a commodity in September 2015. In the eyes of the government, Bitcoin in 2015 was basically oil or gold. So that means it's a commodity, right? Again, that's a hard maybe. Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies work differently from anything of value that we've seen in the past. I'll take you through the asset classes that exist and maybe we can figure it out. Stocks are one class, which is a portion of a company that you own. There's also fixed income or debts that are owed to you, like fixed income would be a certificate of deposit of the bank or if you've ever received a government bond. Commodities, which Bitcoin was originally classified as in 2015, would be a tangible source of value that you can see and touch, like gold, silver, or even real estate. And then finally, you have cash and cash alternatives. Obviously, a dollar in your pocket would be cash, but having money in your savings account is under this category as a cash alternative, because you could easily take a trip to the bank and convert that balance into cash in your hand. So to truly understand a little bit more about where cryptocurrency falls, I decided to jump in on the bandwagon myself. So I set up a profile on Coinbase, and that part was pretty easy. It uh, didn't require much. But now that I'm logged in, I'm trying to figure out how to actually use the wallet. I understand how it works for trading, and that part's pretty easy. You can buy and sell back to this sort of marketplace. I quickly learned that getting into this new type of asset was pretty easy. Fortunately, anyone can jump into cryptocurrency by buying partial coins. With Bitcoin at over $11,000 right now, very few people would actually be able to invest in this new asset. But that also means... So I bought some Bitcoin, and I bought a little bit of Ethereum and Litecoin. And it's cool that you can buy a part of the coin. I purchased $25 worth of Bitcoin and Ethereum, so I own <laughs> uh, percent of it. one Bitcoin with $25. And Ethereum, I have 0.029439966% of a Ethereum coin. So between the two, I am much closer with Ethereum to owning one full coin. I'd only need 97% of it to go. So the average person who does not have thousands of dollars to spare might not own a full coin of cryptocurrency, but you can always grab a sample size amount. Who knows? The price might even drop to a point where you can buy a larger portion or even a full coin. Bitcoin did just fall to over $6,000 in the beginning of this February, so if you've got a spare 6000 you might actually get back to that point in time. But that brings up another important point that makes some investors wary. Why such erratic volatility? I'll explain that part next. Now, there's a lot of strange things about cryptocurrency. The market volatility is definitely one of them, but let me start with the strangest part. Even stranger than a $110 million pizza delivery. Let me introduce him again. Ladies and gentlemen, the father of Bitcoin, the architect of cryptocurrency, the Steve Jobs of modern money, Satoshi Nakamoto, the man who doesn't exist. I told you it was crazy. 
Satoshi Nakamoto has never been confirmed to be a real person. He's kept his identity completely secret, and he even disappeared from the internet in 2011. After putting out a statement that he's moved on to other things, Satoshi turned into a ghost, literally leaving his invention to the whims of the world. He ended his statement saying, Bitcoin is in good hands. But whose hands gave it up? There have been several outing attempts of cryptocurrency's creator, including Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla and SpaceX. Maybe you've heard of him. It's not him. He shot that down pretty quickly. But apparently, the list has been narrowed down to 13 possible people. I won't go through speculation on this, but let's just call it the world's hardest and most interesting game of Clue. I honestly hope no one solves this mystery. It's sort of magical, like Santa Claus for a six-year-old. And there's another huge benefit, too. If no one knows who made Bitcoin, the creator can't be manipulated. No one can threaten this person to shut it down or sabotage the system in some way. No one can spread fake news about the individual. It's really a good thing because even the leadership of Bitcoin is decentralized. And that adds to the stability of the system. But if it's more stable, why does the price jump around so much? Why does a pizza delivery guy get millions of dollars and I can't own 1% of a Bitcoin? I mean, even one year ago, Bitcoin was at $950. This time last year. The next biggest cryptocurrency, Ethereum, was at $17 this time last year. And now it's just short of 1000 Ripple, the attempt at a centralized cryptocurrency, which is decentralized, sits at around $1 right now and had also traded at just pennies in the past. Now, it could be due to expanding technology. There are cryptocurrencies with dozens of different setups and algorithms. Some have even experimented with removing the blockchain. One is connected to the concept behind the Internet of Things, and all of them, absolutely all of them, are hyped to no end. Even the most ridiculous cryptocurrency, the Petro, backed by Venezuelan oil reserves, claim to have raised over $700 million in pre-sale alone. Maybe the volatility is just due to people hearing this amazing new investment opportunity and wanting to make a quick buck. Maybe these investors just want to be the first in on a new piece of the future. But with only limited everyday and mostly back-channel uses, like buying drugs on the internet, a new market floods of new cryptocurrencies, not to mention eager investors. What does the future look like for cryptocurrency? Now, cryptocurrency is still pretty small. The community is tightly knit, and it's really not widely accepted. Some of the biggest retailers that jumped in on Bitcoin are Overstock.com and Expedia. And those are names that you probably recognize a little bit, but a lot of others are just platforms that were tailored to handle cryptocurrency. So they made a market because there isn't one. Basically, they found out that people were trading and owning cryptocurrencies. So they made a place where you could buy items because you had cryptocurrency and now you might want to spend it. It's very likely that you're not familiar with any of the retailers that accept the other ones, the other cryptocurrencies that aren't so popular, like Ethereum or Ripple or basically anything besides Bitcoin. These currencies are not practical yet, but they will become practical. 
even traditional banks are trying to develop their own, J.P. Morgan Chase being one of the top. Now, one of the parts I am most excited about, and maybe this is because I'm from a banking background, maybe I'm just a nerd, but a huge part of the future of money is going to be the elimination of the business day hold. Have you ever gone to a bank to make a deposit thinking about something nice you want to buy or feeling relieved because now you can pay your bills, only to find out this will be cleared by Friday? Why do I have to wait for the money to go through? Go through what? To keep this part short, banks used to manually go through every single check they received and feed it into their systems. They would ship checks out, bags, huge bags of checks to their processing centers, and they would run them all through a computer manually, and they would pay people to do this. In fact, that's why you have business days, and some banks still actually do that. But even though some banks still do that, there's technology that could actually get you your money pretty much instantaneously. But some banks still have those systems and they like them and they do have those nice 9 to 5 weekday only hours. Need your money on Saturday? You're out of luck, champ. But with cryptocurrency and the assurance that funds are certainly there, there's really no need for a long wait. It would take only as long as the computers take to solve their algorithm, that proof of work that I mentioned earlier, which is getting down to minutes and even a matter of seconds now. Maybe I'm impatient, but man, I can't wait to get my money right away every time. Remember how I mentioned you can't reverse transactions? How banks spend a lot of time worrying about that? Well, how does lower fees sound? All transaction fees will be lower if they can't be reversed, because you don't have to spend time worrying about having to get the money back and doing the research into what the transaction actually was and whether it was fraudulent or not. With a more competitive market, will Bitcoin remain the market leader? Which type of cryptocurrency will be universally accepted? Will there be more than one? Will a bank or a federal cryptocurrency become king? And with that, that's really where advertising and marketing comes in. The U.S. dollar is a globally viable currency for trade and the world standard. Arguably, we're pretty safe from an end-of-the-world economic crisis because of that. In the same way, Bitcoin is king for cryptocurrency. And I know I've been talking a lot about Bitcoin over the vast amount of competitors that are out there, but... Bitcoin really is king. It's higher in value, it's accepted many more places, and maybe the best advantage of all, it has name recognition. The universal cryptocurrency will ultimately be more valuable, whichever one that is. Whichever one is accepted worldwide. So, for marketing and advertising, there is money to be made and money to be spent. Because it's a race to the throne, and technically, no one is the true king yet. Advertising can certainly spread awareness, especially with recent innovations in digital technology. Programmatic advertising can easily track who is searching for cryptocurrency opportunities, and these people are eager for information. Crypto enthusiasts are like Wall Street day traders, looking for any edge or whisper of a secret opportunity. Why would the cryptocurrency world benefit, though? 
sure, advertisers can make money off of spreading awareness and making sure that everyone knows about and hopefully trades into this one type of cryptocurrency or another. But why would the cryptocurrency people actually benefit themselves? Well, you can imagine. You can just imagine how the other cryptocurrency developers, how they feel about Bitcoin. How do you think they think about Bitcoin right now? They're envious, they're agitated, and they desire to be the next billionaires. Because Bitcoin already took off. It already has that $11,000 per coin value, but theirs, even Ethereum, the next top coin, is sitting at $857 as I speak. That might be enough to drive the competitors and competing investors to turn towards advertising. That envy, that agitation, and the desire to hold a top spot, to be the people who are recognized for creating the new future of money. I can see five years from now, the top people in other cryptocurrencies looking for that fame, honor, and wealth, turning to advertising to help elevate their cryptocurrency to the top spot, especially those traditional banks. If you don't think J.P. Morgan Chase already developing their own cryptocurrency and trying to make it viable is going to advertise when they actually do have a viable cryptocurrency, I got a few acres on the moon that I think you'd be interested in. Banks want in, and they will pay to make sure the future has room for a Chase, a Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Bank of America. The future of currency may still involve the paper money we see today. It may be like a digital wallet that sites like Coinbase will keep for you. Maybe it'll even look more like those digital lifelines from the Justin Timberlake movie in time. But one thing's for sure, cryptocurrency is here to stay. And we're just in the wild west right now.